All right, Forge family. Last time we were together, last week we were in um, Daniel chapter 7, and there's a shift. We went from the experiences of Daniel in the empires and in the courtrooms of two empires and five kings. Now we're entering into the section of the book of Daniel where we were beginning to be exposed to his visions and his dreams. And all of which now he keeps these private. You know, in fact, he's told in, in chapter 8, he's told, you keep this private. You don't share this. So now we get to find out why. Okay. So the first of this dream was in the first year of, of Belshazzar's apparent, you know, ascension to the throne, 553 BC. And in that vision, uh, it comes this, um, this a dream 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar with an eagle with wings and then a bear and then a leopard with four wings and four heads, and then finally a, a, a horrible beast that terrifies Daniel, and it has ten horns on its head, and, and then as he watches it, there's a horn, a little horn that grows out of the midst, and that little horn on the head of, of this beast um, will grow larger and stronger uh, than any other, and it has human features, it has human eyes, and it has a mouth that is speaking blasphemies of God. So um, all these things speak about kings and kingdoms that are coming. Now Daniel was shocked when he saw how Judah was going to be assailed, how the people, his people, were just going to be overwhelmed and crushed. But he kept watching until the Ancient of Days appears in a courtroom setting on a flaming throne, and it was on, and the throne was on wheels that were aflame. Uh, that that courtroom was for the judgment of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and um, which is known as the beast in the book of Revelation. And uh, right up to the point of his judgment and his death, he keeps heaping blasphemy on God. And, and finally he is killed and his body is consigned to the fire. And then the Messiah was brought in, ushered in in front of the Ancient of Days, and he's coronated and given a kingdom. Um, and then lastly, an angel was sent to Daniel to help him uh, get a hold of what he was seeing. Now, even in spite of that, in the interpretation, Daniel is wrecked. And um, this alarm inside of him remains. And so he, he does keep this vision private. He keeps it for himself. So let's pray. God Most High, you set out to inform your prophet Daniel what was to come in the last days. Now, Daniel had that vision and wrote it out so that the whole body of believers, so that's us too, would be informed as well. So here we are, Lord, seeking further understanding. But we're filled with thanksgiving that your sovereignty and this text stand, stand strong after 2,500 years, Lord. We're, we're so grateful of that. We look to you, Lord, not to any timeline, but to you, just, Lord, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family, you recall last week, you know, we, we closed the recording and then we had sort of an extended conversation about um, Old Testament prophecy. And, you know, the short of it is, you know, an Old Testament prophet would say, thus says the Lord, or God would have you know, or, um, 
you know, the word of the Lord says to you, something in that manner, and then and a long distance, long term, out there in the future, prophecy would be given, but it had to be confirmed by the by a short term uh, prophecy, and if if the short term prophecy failed, that was not a prophet of God that spoke that, and they were stoned. So here, as we enter chapter eight, uh, there's a twist here. Because chapter 7 contained was the long-term view, to the end of days, if you will. Now, chapter 8 begins to backfill, and what's there are two short-term prophecies directly related to chapter 7. So here we go. Verses 1 and 2 says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, Subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, and I looked at the vision, and it came about that I, when I was looking, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. So Daniel saw himself in the stronghold of this, this capital city of the, of the province, or it's actually Elamites were almost a separate ethnic group. And they didn't, they didn't buy into the, the Medo-Persian Empire. They resisted it. But finally, finally in 550 B.C., they sort of agreed, that, okay, we're not going to be at war with you. And ultimately, Susa became a royal city in the, in the Persian Empire. <clears throat> uh, just outside the city walls, um, <clears throat> there were two substantial rivers that flowed past Susa. And so at the confluence... Um, the, the Elamites had built a man-made canal to run the water around the city. And that was called the Ulai Canal. It was 900 feet wide. That's a, that's a lot of water. Okay? Now, since Belshazzar had not personally sent... You know, he, excuse me. He was unaware of Daniel. Remember in chapter 5, I think it was, at the handwriting on the wall? He was not aware of who Daniel was. It took the queen mother to, to say, oh, he's never failed at dream interpretation or unraveling these naughty problems. So it's highly unlikely that Daniel was the one who had been sent from Babylon to Elam as an ambassador, for example. So if you, in the wording of the text, it seems to indicate that Daniel was being supernaturally transported in his vision to stand next to this canal. And it was just as if Phil, just as uh, Philip was lifted out of Samaria and set on the road to Gaza. And here comes the chariot carrying the Ethiopian eunuch trying to read the book of Isaiah and not understanding it. So I think that's what is happening here in chapter 8. That Daniel was transported into this vision. So he could see himself there. He was there. Then in verses 3 to 4, it opens the vision to Daniel. He says, Then I lifted my gaze and looked and behold, beheld a, a ram. So this is a, a male sheep. And they typically have big horns on them. Okay, A ram which had two horns was standing in the front of the canal. Now... The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the long one coming up last. And I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him. Nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So here you have a, a ram uh, with two horns. 
and the one that, that rises last becomes longest and strongest. That would match the Medo-Persian story, that the Medo-Persian alliance initially had the Medes leading, but then the Persians grew in power and influence, and they, it was the Persian Empire, ultimately. <clears throat> the ram is, then strikes south and west and north, and nothing can stop it. it. It overcomes all other beasts. Now, to the east of this is the Zagros Mountains. To, to the east of Elam is, is this huge mountain range, but that was the homelands for the Mede people, and they were already invested into the, into the, into the empire. So the Persian Empire advanced to and then beyond the borders of the Babylonian Empire that it had crushed. It took over everything and then it pushed further. It rose up in great prominence and the ram magnified itself. In other words, it, it stood and had great pride and great standing in its own eyes. Verses 5 to 8 reveals what is to come next. Okay? While it was observing, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without seeming to touch the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. And it came up to the ram that had had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled the ram to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. All right, so this, this is playing back in, in different language, different imagery, much the same as, as the previous <clears throat> in chapter 7. <clears throat> so here, we're let into the mind of Daniel as the Lord begins to expand Daniel's understanding of this vision and the, the dream, including the one just previous. The goat that rushed across the land, seeming not to touch the earth, just moved rapidly, moved fast. That was the picture of Alexander. And his, he and his Greek forces rushed upon the Persian Empire and, and consistently, time after time, defeated them against seemingly impossible odds. And, um, and this, uh, the, the, you know, there's one king, one horn. Okay? We, we might say unicorn, but that's not right on a goat. Okay? Um, the Persian Empire was crushed by the, Greek, by the Greek Empire. And the use of wrath here in the text, in the Old Testament, it exclusively describes uh, God, uh, the emotion of God and, and his judgments. So here, it was God's judgment against the Persian Empire executed by Alexander's forces. Now, just as the male goat exulted in its mighty deeds, okay, the single horn was broken off. Now, when Alexander died at age 29, there are two historic possibilities to that. Number one, he had a case of systemic poisoning from gross debauchery, just drinking himself blind. And he got a fever and died. 
okay? Or the second possibility is that one of his generals, Cassander, poisoned him. We don't know. Doesn't matter. Alexander dies. Okay, and he and when he when Alexander died, he had two sons. They were both murdered. The Greek Empire was then divided into four regional sections, four different governments led by four of his generals. Now we heard that previously. What we didn't know was it took twenty years of intrigue and assassination for that whole picture of four regions and four generals to sort itself out. The text says that four conspicuous horns grew out of that goat so in, in, towards the four winds of heaven. Now, God's hand is on this division as part of his judgment. Now, out of the four regions of the Greek Empire, one is singled out. Verses 9 to 14 introduce another horn, a small one. It says this, and out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up in the, in the, in the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down and on account of transgression the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will bring and he will fling truth to the ground and perform his will and prosper then i heard a holy one speaking and another holy one those are angels okay said to that particular one who was speaking how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgressions uh, cause while the transgression causes horror so as to allow the holy place and the host to be trampled and then this angel turns and speaks to Daniel and says and he said to me quote for 2300 evenings and mornings then the holy place will be properly restored unquote so here we have the opening description of this small horn as a direct reference to the career of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He's just known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. He, he was part of the Seleucid Empire, which is largely Syria and Asia Minor. Okay. And he, he rose through great intrigue and... He, dark doings. He he murdered his youngest nephew that actually had had was the was the legitimate heir, and he became a leader over a, a faction here in the Seleucid Empire that included Palestine, and he begins to expand it. He expands it east. He goes to war against the Parthians and the and the. Um, speak to me. <laughs> There's another, Armenia. He goes goes east. He goes actually to do that. He has to cross one of the other generals' territories to the east of him. He goes and he wins those. Then he goes and he attacks Egypt, and he does it successfully. Egypt was controlled by the Ptolemy, General Ptolemy, and the family that descended from him for a couple of hundred years. And he drives all that Ptolemy family and their forces back into Alexandria. The rest of Egypt to the south, all the way down the Isle 
now is under the under the fist of, of Antiochus. And uh, then he finally gets around to turning his military savagery on Judah, on Palestine. The beautiful land, as it's described. The land where Yahweh had promised to dwell, the center of God's operations on earth. Uh, the suppression of Jerusalem came to a head in 168 B.C. It, it precedes it. You know, the, uh, the, his, his oppression was bad, but, but it got really bad in 168. Antiochus had again invaded Egypt with the intention of wiping the Ptolemy family off the board. He was going to take Alexandria, and all of Egypt was going to be his. And same time, he sent a fleet uh, north to capture the island of Cyprus. He arrives in Egypt, and he's confronted with a Roman ambassador, Gaius Pompilius Lanus, who delivered a message from the Roman Senate. They were directing Antiochus to back off and go home. Leave Egypt alone, leave Cyprus alone. And then Gaius Pompilius takes a sword and draws a circle in the dirt around Antiochus and says, give me your answer before you leave that circle. To leave the circle and not give the answer would put him at war with Rome. So Antiochus stands there, stuffs his anger and his, he's just, his rage, stuffs it down, smiles, and steps over the line, and goes back to Palestine. Well, when he gets there, he is out of control, angry. And he turns his wrath on Jerusalem, particularly. Now, uh, he was an evangelist. And I use that word loosely, okay? He was an evangelist for Hellenized Culture. That means the Greek way of life, of worship of the gods, of the Greek language, of Greek values, and Greek military power. So when he gets to Jerusalem, he slaughters 40,000 Jews. And he puts another 40,000 Jews into slavery. So 80,000 of the, of the residents in Jerusalem are swept away. He orders the murder of the high priest in the temple and replaces him with a Hellenized Jew. This would be a Greek-speaking Jew who would sort of sort of walk through the, the business of leading worship, but he really wasn't committed to it because if he's Hellenized, he's worshiping other gods. <clears throat> Antiochus stopped the morning and the evening sacrifices that were in perpetuity, lifting you know, worship to God morning and evening. It actually gets stated backwards. It's the evening and the morning sacrifices. And then he sets up a statue to Zeus in the temple. He desecrates the holy place. He breaks the, the holy altar. And he sets up an altar and he sacrifices pigs on the altar to the god Zeus, Zeus in the holy place. Just outside the holy place in the temple courts. <clears throat> the Jews... Uh, described this as the abomination of desolation or the, this horrible, inconceivable thing that desolates. Antiochus laid down laws to execute any who continued to worship God or possess copies of the Hebrew scriptures. 
He specifically ordered the Jews not to keep the Sabbath, not to keep kosher, not to circumcise their boy babies, and, and to not keep the Old Testament feasts. Antiochus sought to Hellenize to, make, to create Greek culture in all its extremes and extreme uh, deviance, if you will, in all of Jerusalem and Palestine. He issued coinage, coins that have his picture on it. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, God manifest. He sets himself up as, as if he's God. And he stands opposed to the, the, master, the commander of the host, which is Yahweh. And he goes after and attempts to destroy whatever relationship the Jews had with their coming Messiah, the Prince of Princes. Now, this, this megalomaniac, if you will, just continues to run wild. And many, many Jews capitulated and became Hellenized. They stopped speaking Hebrew and they began to speak Greek. They worshiped Greek gods. You know, they, they, they basically knuckled under and bowed the knee to this crazy man. And, and the reason I can say crazy man is even his contemporaries, his friends, they didn't refer to him as Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Epimanes, which means madman. They, you know, the Greeks that looked at him and went, he's crazy. Finally, the Jews had had enough of him. You know, it, this was a, a relatively short period of time, from, from uh, 167 to 164. But in the three-year period, they had suffered and suffered and suffered. And finally, they went, we're done. And it was the Maccabee family that led an armed rebellion to overthrow this small horn. Antiochus assigned a, man, a general. Uh, now, I'm not sure he was a general, but he was, he was an officer. A military officer named Lysias. And, and a significant portion of his forces to crush the Maccabees and, and maintain his position in Jerusalem and in Palestine while he himself took command of the Seleucid army. So he went slightly north towards Syria, picked up the armies of the Seleucid dynasty, and he goes east to fight against the Parthians. The Maccabees overrun Lysias and uh, Antiochus' forces. They win and they, they cleanse the temple and they reestablish worship in Jerusalem. The word goes from Jerusalem east and finally catches up with Antiochus about this horrific loss uh, in battle and the fact that everything he worked for, for making a Hellenized set of worship things in, New in Jerusalem, it was gone, wiped away. At that point, and when he finished, he, he it said the text says he magnified himself greatly before his troops. He wasn't going to take that defeat lying down. He was God manifest. And he stood up and he proclaimed, you know, this doesn't stop me. I'm going to go forward. And when he stopped speaking, the Lord struck him with a, with a terminal disease in the bowels of worms. And that, that uh, had a horrific smell. It's recorded that people couldn't be around, could not be around him. It was such a terrible, terrible odor. And so he throws himself in the back of a chariot to get himself back to Palestine. And on the way, he is thrown from the back of the chariot and badly injured and does not recover and dies. Now, in chapter, down later in the chapter, the last phrase in verse 25, 
in this chapter 8 says, This small horn would not be broken with human agency. You know, not by human hands. The end of this small horn, this thing, was going to be handled entirely in a supernatural fashion. In a response, you know, to what had happened, he lifts his voice up into God's face and God deals with him. In verses um, 13 and 14, uh, it puts Daniel in a place to hear holy ones, the angels, discuss the cessation of the sacrifice in the temple and how long it would last. Now, this 2300 evenings and mornings exceeds, greatly exceeds the 42 months that um, Antiochus crushed Jerusalem. So this is, again, leaping forward. It, it melds with what chapter 7 said was going to happen. So there's something going on with a shift in worship in the future in a temple in Jerusalem. Now, for the Jews, they don't start the day at sunset. They start the day, I'm sorry, they don't start in the morning like the West does. They start at sunset. The new day begins when the sun goes down. And so it's listed as evenings and then mornings. <clears throat> now now comes the interpretation that Daniel needs. Um, it said, and he says, And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, and I, that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the, to the ground. <clears throat> but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation. Another way to translate it is wrath. So this is you know, God's wrath in the future. <clears throat> For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now here, there's a reference to, uh, to the very presence of God. And it's difficult here to, de to determine who actually was speaking. Was it this man figure standing over the water of the canal? Was it the angel that was being instructed? So... When you arrive in heaven, you can ask uh, ask Gideon. I'm uh, not Gideon. Excuse me, Gabriel. Ask Gabriel. Were you the one standing there speaking, or was that, you know, the Lord Himself instructing Gabriel to come? This is the first time in Scripture that an angel is named. Now, the very late, you know, later that very angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, okay, the father of John the Baptist, and further, you know, a few months later, six months later. To Mary, to inform her of, of uh, a divine impregnation that is awaiting her if she bows and says, Be it according to you, be it according to the word that you've given. Okay? This, this Gabriel is Daniel's interpreter. He addresses Daniel as son of man. Now, that's a very common term in the scriptures. Ezekiel uses it 93 times. So this is not a capital S, Son of Man, because previously we had the, the, the Messiah introduced as Son of Man, fully man, OK? 
Okay, and full, full man, full deity. This is a little different. He addresses Daniel as a mere mortal. Gabriel said in verses 20 to 26, the ram was indeed an image of the Persian Empire, as was the single-horned goat of the Greek Empire. The first short-term prophecy was to come to pass within 200 years of Daniel. All right, let's pause right there. Time out. Remember, you have give a long-term prophecy, you have to have short-term prophecies to verify that you are the man of God to speak that. But this first short-term prophecy comes 200 years after Daniel. Well, no wonder Daniel kept it private. He just clammed up, shut his mouth, and held it private. Ultimately, he wrote it down, but he didn't broadcast it to the Jewish community. Okay, And then, if you will, with the death of the goat... There comes four more kingdoms uh, because of the passing of Alexander. They had power, but they didn't have enough. It wasn't like the power of Alexander behind them. And then the text says, after the transgressions of that four, you know, those four heads, okay, those four horns, okay, after their sin is complete, then, okay, this little horn arises. It says he had a, a dark countenance. His power was to be great. He was skilled in insolent. He was insolent and skilled in intrigue. The power that he had, Gabriel went out of his way to say, but it wasn't his power. <clears throat> he would corrupt mighty men and holy people. This king would destroy many who were, were feeling secure and oppose Yahweh and the prince of princes. Now his death would come not by human hands. Okay? Gabriel then said that the vision of the evening and the morning, evenings and the mornings, was true. That those numbers, that was, that was the real deal. That's going to come to place. But then he goes on and says it pertains to the end of the times. Many days in the future. In, in verse 27, Daniel declared that he was exhausted. It wrecked him. He was exhausted and he was sickened. And he went down. You know, this business of the horror and the desecration of all he remembered of being raised in Jerusalem and knowing Judah and Palestine, that crushed him. And to, to hear about this abomination of desolation, it made him sick. Now, yes, a temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, that was Zechariah, remember in the book of Zechariah, after Daniel's time. And it was that temple that was desecrated. The sacrifices were stopped. It had been pillaged. It would be pillaged and defiled. The statue of Zeus would be set up and there would be sacrifices of pigs on an altar to Zeus. <clears throat> the horror of slaughter and slavery uh, just dropped Daniel. He it collapsed him. <clears throat> the last line in chapter 8 says, I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. Daniel got the interpretation. He didn't understand it. You know, the, he was told this is going to happen at the end of days, and he just went, "Whoa, you know, don't don't get it." So, all right, family. Uh, here we had a look. At, we get a look at two, if you will, shorter term fulfillments of one of God's long term prophecies. Chapter seven pointed to the savage time of the Antichrist at the end of days and the return of Messiah to fight and to rule. Chapter 8 points to a parallel little horn that blasphemed Yahweh, lifted himself up as an equal, 
defied the holy place, pillaged the temple, and set up an alternative form of worship. Having overturned the law of Moses and, uh, and all its demands of righteousness on the Jews. Now remember in the phrase in verse 24 that this little horn of Daniel's vision would have power, just not coming from himself. Antiochus was empowered by Satan in his hatred of Yahweh and of his people, the Jews, the people Israel. And what and all they stood for on earth. And so he Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes raged against them to say, you know, his physical manifestation of it, his hatred of God. But he's speaking and acting out of demonic power. So too, the Antichrist will attack Israel. Now, one of the men I've really enjoyed reading, getting ready for this series, is a man named Stephen Miller. And, and I'm just going to, I reworded some of his summary here, but you get to hear, I want you to hear the summary, okay? Antiochus and the Antichrist are symbolized by the small and little horns, okay? Both of these historical creatures, one from the past, one in the future, will have hard faces, stern, imposing looks. Antiochus was a master at intrigue, and the sly abilities of the Antichrist will offer seeming solutions to supposed impossible situations to mankind that mankind has struggled with. Antiochus exhibited great power, the Antichrist even more so. Antiochus killed thousands. Antichrist will destroy more. Antiochus prospered for a short while. Likewise, the Antichrist has limited days. Antiochus persecuted saints and the Antichrist will oppose those who believe in Christ, as well as the Jews. Antiochus was a deceiver. The Antichrist will be a master deceiver. Antichrist, Antiochus excuse me, dis- displayed pride as God manifest on the coins, and the Antichrist's arrogance will greatly exceed even that. Antichrist blasphemed God as will the Antichrist. Antiochus was not killed by human hands, and neither will the Antichrist be done away with. That's the Lord's going to take care, as he did with Antiochus, he will do with the Antichrist. Now, why do we need to know all this? Okay, first, the Lord is faithful in his promises to us and to his people Israel. He's gone out of his way to make known what is coming for us and for Israel. No portion of scripture is closed and locked away to us because Holy Spirit opens eyes and hearts. However, Israel's heart is still hardened. They don't get it yet. Israel's, uh, you know, is the one, we're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the people of Israel, where God set his name up forever. And what are we supposed to do with this short-term prophecy? See, we're not supposed to be surprised by Satan's power, Satan's uh, ploys to steal, kill, and destroy. We're to discern the spirit of the events and individuals and pray accordingly. Live out of righteousness accordingly 
and resists Satan so that he flees from us. And finally, just as Daniel was grieved and ill at the hearing of the gross defilement and destruction, so too, when it's appropriate, we are, it's a, please grieve. If you hear something awful, you grieve. Okay? But we are not to be discouraged. Discouragement immobilizes us. It just stops us. Like Daniel, we are to arise. Daniel to go serve the king, but when we arise, after a period of grief, if you will, you know, our, our, our puzzlement, that's fine, we rise up and we stand to serve the Lord God by Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God who dispatches your angels to us for ministry, for healing, and for strengthening, please, Lord, send them now. Holy Spirit, who gifts us with discernment of spirits, awaken that gifting in our midst to all of us. Lord, we choose to rise and serve you only, avoiding any discouragement and immobilizing emotions and fears. We stand before you as Daniel did, waiting to be assigned. Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. In Jesus' name, amen.